Let's all humble our hearts before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come to you on this day, bowing before your throne of grace and asking for your mercy on us as we go through this life. Sometimes we make mistakes, sometimes we make inadvertent mistakes, sometimes we do things even on purpose that we know we shouldn't do. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, that you'll forgive us those things, be with those who are sincerely seeking as they come out into your truth, give them the encouragement, the understanding to continue strong in the truth, no matter what may come. For we know the signs of the times are getting more and more clear. We see things happening now that, that forecast the return of Yahshua the Messiah. So we pray that you'll be with each of those who's struggling to learn and to understand, and we, may we be a help in that. We pray also that you'll be with the brethren, wherever they might be, as they worship you and honor you, strengthen their resolve, strengthen their, their attitudes. They may be strong and well in the faith. We ask also that you'll be with us this day. May you speak out in this message. May the words be yours and that we would learn and we might be drawn closer to you through them. So this we ask in Yasha's name. Hallelujah. And you may be seated. I don't know if you saw this in the news. End of January. Try that again. End of June. It wasn't that long ago. It says about three dozen California lawmakers are pushing for resolution ACR 99, which calls on counselors, pastors, religious workers, educators, and institutions to stop labeling homosexuality and transgenderism a sin, saying it's harmful and unethical. A minister was interviewed about this afterward, and he said this is the first step into controlling what is said from the pulpit. I understand it's going on right now in Canada. won't be long till one day it's, it'll be in our neighborhood, too. Someone asked, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when that time comes? You know, when Stephen learned in the Bible study this morning... When Stephen was being stoned, what did he do? He kept, he gave a message, he gave a sermon just before, and he kept talking about Yahweh, he kept talking about the truth of Yahweh up until the first rock was thrown. So that's what we're going to do. Keep on going until Yahweh says enough. That's all we can do because we're responsible for the truth we know. But we know censorship is coming. We all need to get serious about our walk both as a group and also as an individual. So what's your devotion level? Have you ever seen a business post its standards and practices? Broadcasters usually do this. They detail what you can expect and how they conduct their affairs and the guidelines by which they operate. Up front, honest, no surprises. Yahweh has his own standard and practices. He reveals them by telling us what he expects and how and what to observe. And that way, come judgment time, there are no surprises, no excuses. You know, the entire Bible shows his standards and practices, so each one getting baptized is fully apprised of what's ahead, what's expected of them. We, we explain this to them. Uh, when You're making a vow, and this is going to be for the rest of your life. Not just 
after you walk out the door. And I also try to make it clear that when you get baptized, this isn't the end. This is only the beginning of a new life. Some people get the idea, well, I get baptized and I got it made. That's only the beginning. Now your walk begins. Now the tough part begins. But also the blessings. One day, when Yahshua returns. The entire Bible shows his standards and practices. So each one has an idea of what he's getting into. Is fully informed on what they're expected to do. And so they go into immersion with eyes wide open, so to speak. He lays out his entire salvation program in detail and how to conform to it. But, you know, that doesn't phase most people. It goes right over their heads. Who keep their own traditions, make their own way, and still expect to win his favor in the end. An example is one fellow has said, you know, I don't worry about whether it's wine or grape juice for Passover. I don't get all that worried about getting all that leaven out of my house for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I don't live in temporary dwellings at tabernacles. I don't worry. Well, clearly the man lacked respect for Yahweh with little concern for Yahweh's will. He's following his own will. But that will that he's following is not going to end well. Did the Bible waste time and parchment on these specific provisions because they really don't matter? But they really don't mean much? It's just something to do to keep everybody busy? Does Yahweh give a wink and a nod to alternative worship and practices? Is that okay? Is that okay with him? Proverbs 16.25, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Yeah, you can do your own will. That's a pretty much of a dead-end road. Some may be saying, Alan, you're preaching to the choir. Well, that too, because I sense the choir is getting a little lackadaisical. I feel the choir is slipping a bit. When we look out at the panorama, and we look at it, the panorama believers, and we look at it from the perspective of the 1970s and 1980s, I see a difference. I really do. I see a difference in attitude and dedication. There was a real conviction then, which we see less and less today, because I think the world is making it that way as well. Increasingly less of the word and increasingly more of the world. There's a reason the prophet told us to cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions in the house of Jacob, their sins. The signs are there. And, you know, it's, it's always the details that fall first. You notice that? It's always the little stuff that falls first. Bigger stuff is coming. But the details are critical with Yahweh. They reveal the level of our dedication. How really dedicated are we? Yahweh is a mighty one of detail. Just look at creation. It's packed full of miraculous detail in how he created this universe, how he created you and me. He thought of all the details. He put antiseptic in our tears so that if we happen to get a bug in in our eye or something, the tears will clean themselves. David said in Psalm 139, 14, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
You said a mouthful, David. Yahweh thought of everything. It's miraculous on how he created us. He put minerals in our saliva so that we rebuild enamel. It gets worn away each time we eat. That enamel has to be rebuilt or our teeth will be ground down to nothing in no time. He put a, a base opposite of acid in seminal fluid that neutralizes the acidic environment of the birth canal so that the sperm have a, an opportunity to fertilize the egg before they die. He thought of that. But the acid in the birth canal also protects the, uh, the plumbing there, too, from infection. These are only a few of the millions and millions of complex ways in which Yahweh creates stuff we wouldn't even think of. Your eyebrows to keep water from dripping in your eyes on a hot, sweaty day like yesterday. You know, have we had thought of that? Probably not. He thinks of everything. When he gives us specific facets of what he expects in the spiritual life, he also is very specific. And he means what he says, no matter if it's popular or not. Remember someone saying, you actually eat flat bread for, the, for, a, for a week during unleavened bread? Yeah, we do. Do you actually go without food and water a full day at atonement? Yes, we do. It's a detail, but it's important to Yahweh, so we do it. We aren't here to please the world or our neighbors or our friends or our family. We're here to please him. And as assemblies, to live and teach the word, even if we're the last ones standing doing it. Salvation is too serious to play with. The end of all the years we spend on this life is salvation or not, depending on how we do this life. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show yourselves approved unto Elohim, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing. If you aren't studying, if you aren't into the scriptures regularly, then you're not, you're not approved by Yahweh. He just said that. All believers are expected to prove his truths and have the ability to discern truth from error. We must know the basics. We must be able to defend our faith. Can you give five solid reasons that the name Yahweh is correct? Right off the top of your head, can you give them? Can you answer the seven most popular challenges against his name? How about showing ten proofs for the Sabbath? From the scriptures. Can you counter the five most popular arguments against the biblical feasts people like to give? Can you counter them? Do you have scriptural, book, chapter, and verse? Ready? These are basics for every believer. We should know this. If we expect to be paid, we must do the work. He commands. If we want the rewards, you know, we have to do what he says to do. We have to be serious about our walk and walk the way he directs. Matthew 4.4, 4, but he, Yahshua, answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. You know, even the wily old Satan knew better. He knew better when he was challenging Yahshua. And Yahshua said this. 
Well, yes, everything, but the little things. No, he didn't say that. He knew when he said every word, he meant every word. The details as well. Satan knew it. He didn't challenge him anymore. Clearly, we've got to be worthy of the prize. Being that Yahshua is the judge of salvation, it's spiritual suicide to go any other way. 2 Thessalonians 1.11 Wherefore also we pray also for you that our Elohim would count you worthy. Notice the words, count you worthy of this calling. Luke 20.35 But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage. Those who are accounted worthy. There's a standard you have to measure up to. Yahshua said the worthy ones, the chosen ones, are to be deemed for resurrection and acquire the world. But this fellow who was flippant about following all the word, and millions of others say, I'll worship him my own way. My way is convenient and easy and hardly requires anything. I'll go that way. Well, I mean, there's roads to nowhere, too. I remember we were living back east, and they had a road called Road to Nowhere. I always wanted to go on and see where it went, you know, and see where nowhere was, but we never did that. I guess it ends up in a drop-off or something. But uh, you can follow that road. It goes nowhere, but you follow it. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Let me say that again. James 2.10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, one detail, you might say, is guilty of all. See, once you compromise the details and say the seemingly minor issues don't really matter, where does that runaway train end up? On the road to nowhere. On the railroad to nowhere. If we're allowed to manipulate the Sabbath, for instance, is it okay to go on and switch the Sabbath to another day? Or just ignore it entirely? Changing or ignoring details is a slippery slope, and Yahweh warns of the dangers of doing so. See, he's a mighty one of detail. He realizes that the entire camel will soon be in the tent if you allow that nose under the flap. It all boils down to your level of devotion. How close do you want to be to Yahweh? How much do you want salvation? You know, he doesn't cotton to compromising. One of the most sobering of verses is what Peter was inspired to write in 1 Peter 4.18. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, this one always, this is a very sobering, every time I read this, I, I think, wow. If the righteous scarcely be saved, man, where shall the unrighteous and the sinner appear? When I read this, I ask myself, am I even close to the level of the patriarchs and the lives they lived? You know, I seem to, I fall short in every category. Human nature is to seek the loophole, always push the limits, and change things to suit self for the sake of ease, convenience, conformity to the majority. That's what humans like. Ultimately, it goes back to whom you serve. You know, an idol is anything that comes between Yahweh and you in worship. We ourselves are the biggest impediment there. We are masters of putting ourselves before Yahweh. We find myriads of ways to slip by, to slip out of our commitment to Yahweh. As with 
all our obligations, we have to learn to sacrifice ourselves. That's, what, that's one of the major things of being a believer. You've got to be able to sacrifice yourself for others. How are we doing there? We have to draw the line where Yahweh draws the line and live within those parameters that he sets for us. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of Elohim is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, it goes right to the heart every time. Right to the heart. What's in your heart? You do what you do from what's in your heart. And his ways certainly do cause problems. They cause divisions. Some say that expecting to follow every aspect and detail of Yahweh is just, it's too extreme, too harsh. It's, it's majoring in the minors and it's really not that important. Okay, so let's tell John the Baptist before he lost his head. You're too hard-headed, John. Don't be so dogmatic on Herod and his, and his uh, marital choices. Tell Hophni and Phinehas, there's nothing special about fire. You're the priest. Strike your own match. It doesn't matter. Fire is fire. Explain to Moses that he's free to vent his anger on a rock. Yahweh won't care about something so trivial. Strike the rock. You know, it's always easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Tell Saul he can keep the best of the Amalekites' livestock for himself. Why waste good beef, good, good sheep? Why let good animals go to waste? They never sinned anyway. Why would you have to kill them too? They're just dumb animals. Yahweh will cut you some slack. He understands. Now that you've been caught red-handed, you can say it was the people's idea, and they were just saving the livestock for sacrifices to you, Yahweh. Remind David that the Philistines transported the ark on a cart, and that you can, you can do the same. It's not an issue. Tell Uzzah that it's okay to throw out your arm to steady it so the ark doesn't fall to the ground. That's okay. It's just a little detail. You're only trying to save the ark from falling anyway. Yahweh shouldn't strike you dead for that. So where's your level of devotion? When it comes to details, how dedicated to Yahweh are you, really? Well, that's all tongue-in-cheek, of course. In truth, names in the Bible are very important, and Yahweh details them for a reason. In many cases, Bible names are fragments of ancient history. You see, we've lost this in our culture, our Greco-Roman culture. Names don't really mean anything. They're just a label we tack on. I mean, once it's yours, yeah, you want to live up to your name, live up to it. But in, in the scriptures, names had a history, and they meant something very important to the person and to the family. Revelations of divine purposes, expressions of hopes, and prophecies of the future all tied up in names. Names describe natural or personal qualities. They have symbolic features as well. Look up the names in Scripture and what they mean. Get yourself a RSB, look in the back at, under the Hebrew names and see just how important they were and what they mean. It, it kind of opens up a whole panorama of understanding of the Bible when you do that. 
they connect family relationships, as with surnames, which really just is a contraction that means supername, a name that covers the whole family, each person. They often carry a religious significance, as with the uh, theophoric element, Yah, in many biblical names. Hezekiah, Isaiah. It reflects a, a surname or family name in both Yahweh and Yahshua. How can you overlook that stuff and use a substitute that has no meaning at all? Made up Greek Latin word. How can you do that? Or a title. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a title. It's just a classification. It's just a category. Yahweh is a pigeonholed into this category because he's a G-O-D. So we call him G-O-D. What, what meaning is there? You know, names are fascinating and far more important than what many people realize. Did you know that besides the name of a famous city, Bethlehem, that's also the name of a guy? Yeah. A descendant of Caleb, First Chronicles 2, look it up. Eden was a garden, but also the name of two men. Sons of Joah, Second Chronicles 29, 12, as well as a Levite in Hezekiah's time, 31, 15 of Second Chronicles. You know, the more you dig, the more you learn. Like Yahweh himself, his scriptures are just amazing. A guy asked uh, this week, I think... Uh, Lucas forwarded this to me. Uh, he said, who wrote Psalm 119? You know, the, the great law psalm. Who wrote that? Well, I looked up in a, uh, just to make sure I had my facts right. I looked up in, uh, I guess it isn't here. It isn't in the RSB. <laughs> anyway, uh, one reference said it was Hezekiah. And another reference says, you know, because every verse in 119 talks about the law or obedience or in some way obedience to the law, that some have speculated it is a collection, a collection, an edited collection put together. Because how many people write that way? Think about it. Saying the same thing over and over and over in different ways, over and over and over. I thought that was kind of fascinating. Is it, was it an edited Psalm or what? I don't, I don't know. Do, will we ever know? I don't know. But, uh, no, it is an acrostic where every, uh, every section begins with a, another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, it's almost like it was made that way. Then. But then it can also be inspired that way. So, but it's fascinating to come across things that, uh, wow, I didn't know that. The more you dig, the more you learn. You know, the way is narrow, and it takes study, it takes understanding, it takes dedication. It takes a lot of dedication. The narrow way is narrower than most people think. Compliance with all the word reveals your heart, your dedication, and your resolve. Looking for loopholes shows just the opposite. Loose dedication, nonchalance, uh, don't care attitude in many ways. In Matthew 5.19, Yahshua said, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Great if you do and teach them. Does this mean that if you practice and teach commandment breaking, you'll be allowed into the kingdom, but just as a doorstop? 
It seems that the KJV is a bit imprecise here. The 20th century New Testament, in combination with Moffat's, reads that he will be least esteemed in the realm of heaven. In other words, a commandment-breaking, no-law teacher will have zero respect and honor among the heavenly hosts. Not the least of which are Yahweh and Yahshua. Nothing about being there, nothing about walking around in heaven, having no respect of the others. That's self-contradictory, isn't it? He wouldn't even be there. But he won't have any esteem among those that are there. Puts a whole different light on it. Our salvation hinges on a proper and accurate understanding of the Bible. Paul told Timothy, take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. That's proper teaching. Doctrine just means teaching. Continue in them. For in doing this, you shall both save yourself and them that hear you. 1 Timothy 4.16. He didn't just say, well, just pick and choose what you want. They're all, they're all good. Whatever, whatever you want to believe, it's good. Salvation comes by hearing and following the teachings of the word. We heard a politician recently say, all religions have value. All religions are good. All religions have salvation at the end. What she didn't say is Yahweh has expectations in his faith. He has expectations. He expects his people to do and follow. So they're not all the same. That's a bunch of hooey. There are levels of holiness with Yahweh. Matthew 5.12 says, Great is your reward in heaven when you survive persecution and false accusations. I know it's tough to go through them, but you're, you're, you know, don't lose your crown. Great is your reward if you make, if you don't, don't bend. In Matthew 10.41, Yahshua distinguished between a prophet's reward and a righteous man's reward. So there's different levels of rewards depending on the life you live. He said we'll be judged by how we live this life. His parable, so many parables have so many truths in this regard. His parable of the talents talks about receiving rulership over different numbers of cities depending on your dedication and the work you do to bless, the, bless his word, to multiply his word that he's entrusted to you. For a variety of reasons, some passages create difficulty. You know, problems result when care is not taken to rightly divide the word. That's part of what he was saying. You can't afford to be careless with the scriptures. The word, Paul said, is given for proper doctrine, for teaching, for correction, and instruction in righteous living. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. That means don't fiddle with the word and don't broaden the way. Don't make it an easier way than it, it's laid out. Just follow it. Follow the way it's laid out. That's where the reward is. What's the point of giving us instructions on life and worship if we're just going to do it our own way anyway? What, what, what's the point? Why, why, why waste time? Why waste anything? We may, may as well just go read some Greek philosophy. In Second Thessalonians 5.21, Paul wrote, Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. To prove all things, you've got to be able to know the word, don't you? How else do you prove it if you don't know it? Paul also told Timothy, study 
to show yourself approved unto Elohim, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word. That means check it out. The number one problem today is people are too lazy and feel inadequate to check it out. Well, you've got to start somewhere. I felt inadequate when I started algebra. Then I was really inadequate when I had to move on to trigonometry. But I had to work at it, but I, I couldn't say, well, I, I can't do it. I just don't know. I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm not going to. I had to do it. And it was tough. Learning something is tough. We don't, we don't necessarily like it. We like to know stuff. Once we know it, it's fine. But to learn something new, we shy away from it because it's not easy oftentimes. Sometimes it's enjoyable, especially if we really enjoy what we're learning. But normally not. Job 38.2, Yahweh asks, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? They not only don't give the right answer or the advice that, They should, but their counsel makes things worse because they don't speak the word. And so they put others in darkness. I estimate that not even 1% of this world has the least bit interest in 2 Timothy 2.15 and the command to study the word. And that's a big problem. The way to salvation is narrow, and it says few will find it. Says Yahshua, the very judge of salvation, he ought to know. He knows what's coming. He knows what the word is. He knows what his judgment has to be, and he sees people with a long way to go. The command is to rightly divide the word of truth. The term is from a single word, orthotomio in the Greek, The expository dictionary defines it as not dividing scripture from scripture, as some would love to believe, but teaching scripture accurately, accurately. The treasury of scripture knowledge says the reference, the quote, quote, is not to dividing up scripture into dispensations and applying to ourselves only what is allegedly valid for this dispensation. Neither is it dividing scripture on the basis of to whom it was originally addressed or spoken of, the Jew, the Gentile, or the church, for all scripture is given by inspiration, and all scripture is profitable for what? For doctrine, teaching. We have no right, I'm still quoting, by such arbitrary arbitrary. Distinctions to eliminate from our careful consideration whole sections of the word, like throwing out the Old Testament. It's no longer needed. The emphasis not upon right division or wrong subtraction, but on correct interpretation. You can find that on page 1432 if you want in the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Another verse is Philippians 1.10, where after Paul encourages that you may abound in knowledge, He's praying for that, that you'll have knowledge. And in all judgment says that you may approve the things that are excellent. And our excellence should have been translated differ. That you will know the difference. The difference. In other words, study and sift out error. That's just not a good way to go about evangelism. That is a command. Command. 
How many people are fulfilling that command? If we as assemblies fail to teach the word in favor of fluff, we'll be aiding and abetting the ignorance of people, the continuation of their error, and we'll be held accountable. Nothing less than malpractice, the way I see it. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Prove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Or as it should say, having itching ears, they're going to heap to themselves teachers. They want to hear what they want to hear, and not what you have to say if you're teaching the word. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. That includes running to a minister so that he can twist you back up again. Instead of going to the word, because you're responsible for your own salvation. You gotta go to the word. You gotta find the truth. You gotta rightly divide. Not him. Your responsibility is for you. If you want a little help, fine, but be sure you double check him because there's a lot of falsity out there. Fables, muthos, having only the appearance of truth. And boy, does that ring a bell? When you talk to some people, it sounds good, but it's unsupported in the word. It only has the appearance. So how do we avoid being deceived by the errors of our times? You dispute error by study and learning and digging into the word. The trend today is fulfillment of Paul's warning to Timothy. Fewer and fewer wanting to teach sound doctrine. Let's do everything but teach the Bible. After we test teachings and find what it, how it deviates from truth, we make a distinction. We drop the error. That is the way restoration of truth works. So how can we know that we're properly understanding Yahweh's word? How can we go about rightly dividing the word? Well, there are about five precepts that you really have to follow. The first principle of proper Bible understanding is to take the passage as it reads. As it reads, look for the obvious literal meaning. A symbolic or deeper sense of it will be evident, especially in combination with other related verses. The more you learn, the more you discern. The more you can add up truth, the more things will ring true. I remember my wife saying, well, you're getting online. How do you know what they're saying is right? Well, you have to study it out, and you have to prove it. You have to, first of all, a lot of things just ring true. It just do, you know, it's just endemic. That sounds right, but then prove it. Then you'll know. There's so many out there, so many websites out there that can throw people. That's why we're dealing with all these crazy teachings we never had 20 years ago for the Internet. Was it 20? Something like that. A lot of crazy things out there anymore. Some guy gets a notion in his head, throws up a website, and people start believing it. They don't check it out. So, the more you learn, the more you'll know. When Yahweh commands, remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy in Exodus 20, verse 8, and then explains that we're to work six days and then rest the seventh, he means to keep the Sabbath literally by resting from work. The passage will be better rendered, remember to observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy, 
which is how a few versions translate it. This shows that the command is not intended for just a spiritual application, as many teach, but for literal ceasing from work, things you don't do as work on the Sabbath, because that day is set for him. It's set apart for him, for focus on him, for learning about him. You're not going to do that when you're out working your job. Principle two, read the passage in context. Read all around the passage. Read the verse before, the verse after. Read the whole chapter until you get the context when you've got a, a verse that's difficult. This often will reveal the true meaning of what's talked about there. Example, Romans 14.5, used to support Sunday worship. One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Oh, I can decide. I can decide which day I want to keep. I think I'll keep Wednesday this week. Uh, Thursday looks good. Next week, I'll keep that. I don't have anything going. Uh, I'm being persuaded in my own mind, see? No. Read the entire chapter. It's plain to see that Paul is addressing the practices of fasting and vegetarianism. But basically here, he's talking about fasting. You can choose to fast any day you want, except maybe the Sabbath, because it's a feast day, but, and maybe a holy day. But that's what he's talking about. That's, you can, I mean, some people, uh, I know one ministry fasted every Monday. The Pharisees, was it Monday and Wednesday or something like that? Um, you can choose whatever day you want. If you want to fast, draw closer to Yahweh, good for your health. By the way, they're finding out it's really good for your health. But uh, if you need to uh, shed a few pounds, you know, fast a day. It's not going to kill you. Like the guy says, I can't believe you, you fast a whole day with no water, too. Yeah, that's what it says. And I'm still living testimony that it works. You know, a verse will never contradict any other passage in the Word. And people will not let the scripture explain itself. They'll take one passage, one verse, text out of the Bible, proof text, and uh, try to make a doctrine out of it. Biggest mistake is failure to harmonize the scriptures. That's led to so many bad teachings. They don't look at everything on that subject and put it all together. A verse is never going to contradict any other verse in the word. If it does, then Yahweh's contradicting himself. In John 10.35, Yahshua said the scriptures cannot be broken. Broken is the Greek luo, and it means to loosen or dissolve. So you can't dissolve one passage and pick up another one that says the same thing or seems to counter that one. All scripture is given by inspiration. It's all Yahweh breathed, which is where we get the word inspiration, inspire. And Yahweh never contradicts his own word, Hebrews 6, 18. So we can't say Paul did away with the law in Galatians 3, 13, only to have him upholding the law in Romans 7, 1, and 12. It doesn't work. The Bible harmonizes. You know, the same way we can't read of the Savior's plain instructions to the young man, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments in Matthew 19, 17, and then turn right around and say, he abolished the law at his death. 
Now, how does that work? Why would he lie to this young man? Why would he do that? Making an instruction useless and pointless? See, it doesn't fit. Square peg, round hole. When a particular view of a passage doesn't seem to hold up to light, then there's something wrong with the view that's taken on that verse. If there's something opposite says somewhere else, then something is wrong with our understanding. You got to switch your understanding. And don't be afraid to do so. Principle four, know the context. I think we already did that one. You got to know, for example, 1 Corinthians 16.2 has been grossly misinterpreted to support worship on the first day of the week. We've all heard it. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as Yahweh has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now, just logic tells you. This can't be talking about passing an offering plate in church. It can't. He says, what's the point of laying, preparing this stuff and having it ready so when I come, you're not going to the church. He's coming to you, coming to your house, that you'll have it ready so you don't have to scurry around. Oh, Paul's at the door. Hang on. And he's got other places to go and other people to see. I got to get the stuff ready. And by the way, that's not money. <laughs> I mean, it could have been, but he's basically talking about foodstuffs because there was a famine in Jerusalem. They had a, a drought going on. And you know with a drought, you don't grow food. So they, he, he says, we're going to help these brethren in Jerusalem because brethren help brethren. And so I'm going to gather some foodstuffs and whatever those people can use, and you have it ready, and I'll go to Jerusalem and I'll take it there. Or I'll have people take it there. Or I'll have people come get it, whatever it was. So he says, lay by store so that you have it ready. He's seeking help for these people. He's not talking about taking up an offering during a service. No reference to a Sunday worship there is intended or implied. A careful reading of the first four verses reveals the truth of the circumstance and will dispel any erroneous interpretation of that if you just read it. Just read it. Some taught that Paul taught against observing Sabbaths and feasts in Galatians 4.8. Howbeit then, when you knew not Elohim, you did service unto them which by nature are no G.O.D.'s. But now, after you have known Elohim, or rather known of Elohim, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? Is he saying you're going back to the truth? Is that what he's saying? We used to have a TV program called Back to the Truth. You observe days and months and times and years. Oh, okay. You observe Sabbaths and you observe new moons and you observe feast days. So I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. You're going back to these things. No, that's not what he's talking about. If we understand that the Galatians were converts from a particular place called Gaul, and that's where the word Galatians comes from, an area of old France over the northwestern Europe, uh, these people were gross pagans. And they kept wanting to go back, as the, as the nature of man is, go back to the way he, he uh, once was. He can't take the truth, so he's going back. It's clear he's telling them to stop going back to their old heathen ways. Days, months, times, and years is speaking not about the Sabbath and the feasts and everything, 
but their old false worship. Why would he command to do and teach these things? I must by all means keep this feast that comes to Jerusalem and then tell people, you're going back to the feast, those old bad pagan ways. See, people get snowed because they don't know. Know and you won't get snowed. And his days are never referred to as weak and beggarly. They're Yahweh's own will for crying out loud. He says his laws are defined as holy and just and good. Romans 7.12. All right. Another principle. Number five. And then we're done. Language and grammar. Language and grammar. So important. So important to understand the word. That's why we came up with this book right here. Because one of the main things we're trying to show is the importance of the source languages, the Hebrew and the Greek. Though I don't believe Greek was the original of the New Testament. But, you know, we've got to get back as close as we can until someone visits the Vatican and finds the New Testament in Hebrew somewhere in that big vault they got down there that goes for acres. But anyway, uh, that's just my own speculation. But anyway... Uh, Anyone who's studied a foreign language knows that nuances of meaning are lost going from one language to another. It's inevitable. That's why we keep getting more and more versions, more and more correct versions. As people study and learn more, you know what words should have been to get closer to. And so, but, you know, back then they did the best they could with the knowledge they had. But archaeology and other things that scholarship has brought in closer and closer to the truth. So anyway, uh, it's, it's understood that uh, when you go from language to language, you lose something. There's always something lost. By returning to the original languages as you can, as much as you can, you come closer to understanding the true meaning. So we, we utilize that back section quite a bit. The Strong's Hebrew and Greek Dictionary. I'm sure glad that we were able to, uh, to put it in our Bibles without worrying about copyrights. Strong's uh, allows that if that copyright has expired then and also uh, the King James may not be the perfect Bible for many reasons but we correct the, the errors or the misunderstandings in the notes so that you can show other people just by looking at the notes you know to explain it to them but also again the copyright doesn't apply in the United States the King James is the uh, the copyright in England is owned by the crown, but we don't have to worry about that because uh, it doesn't apply uh, to us here in this country. So it worked out really well. So we could use, utilize Strong's numbers to find the Hebrew and the Greek words to that word that you're reading right there, the little superscript number. Anyway, makes it easier. Prisoners love it because they, they got like three books in one, you know. They can uh, study the word, go to the back, get the number, go to the back, read read what it says in the Hebrew or the Greek, and, hey, do their own study with one book. The common interpretation of Romans 10.4 is that Yahshua did away with the law. For the Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Well, let's go home. He's the end of the law. We, we don't have to be here. We can be here tomorrow. We can do whatever we want to. No, no. That's not what end means. It's telos in Greek, and it means he's the goal. He's the whole purpose. The, goal, the law points to him, and he points to the law. 
He's the whole purpose for it, not the end, because that same word telos is used of Yahweh. So I guess Yahweh doesn't exist anymore either. He's the end, the telos. No. So you've got to understand the words. Far from the termination of the law, he's the very purpose for it. The law transforms us. It says it's holy, just, and good. It's good. It's not bad. It's good. To be like Yahshua, because that's what he follows. That's his code of ethics. That's his father's code of ethics. And he says, if you've seen the father, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So it applies to both of them. Why would it not apply to us? We're supposed to be following them, become part of their family. Learn it now so we know what to do in the family and not be, you know, a, a renegade or something. Well, you wouldn't be in the family if you were, but anyway, uh, that's what it's all about. He says, the law aims at him, the law transforms us to be like him. He said in Matthew twelve fifty, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother. Huh, see, you're part of the family. And sister, uh-huh, and mother. Now we can employ principles three and five together. The same word telos is found in James 5.11. And you have heard the patience of Job and have seen the end, telos, of Yahweh. Same word is used in both passages. If telos means end, as in the end of the law, then Yahweh also has come to an end. But that's not what it means. Another example of the importance of knowing the original meaning of words is Matthew 25, 46, which has been interpreted to say that the wicked go to an ever-burning hellfire to roast in agony for eternity. You know, if we all have instantaneous immortality when we die, why does everybody go to heaven? Even if he's a, a real scoundrel, people say he's in heaven. Why doesn't he go to hell? If he's already been judged, he's going to heaven. Why wasn't he judged and gone to hell? Hellfire, I should say, because hell just means a grave. But uh, I've often wondered about that. Everybody goes to heaven, and yet they talk about going to hell. Lucas had a good response to uh, a man who was arguing about uh, going to heaven at death. And then... Well, what does he come back for? Um, and then go through the judgment. Oh, oh, I guess uh, he has to find out why he was worthy to be heaven in the first place. <laughs> Excellent response. And they say, well, I came back from my body. You don't need a body. You're a spirit being. He says your body's going to change in the twinkling of an eye. They don't think these things through. You know, it's really something. He says, the wicked go to an ever-burning hellfire to roast in agony for eternity. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Sir, there you go. Everlasting punishment, that means you burn forever and ever and ever. First of all, a righteous mighty one would never, never give you that kind of punishment with no chance of parole. Think about it. Forever and ever? He's not that. He's not the mighty one we serve. The word punishment is from the Greek kolossus, 
and it signifies a lopping off. When I uh, peel a banana, I do a lopping off of the end. I just cut it off. And that's what he's talking about here. It derives from number 2849 in Strong's Greek Dictionary and means to curtail, to cut short, to cut off. In other words, to no longer be. Properly interpreted, the verse tells us that the wicked will forever be cut off, their lives curtailed after they are judged for that judgment. This agrees with 2 Thessalonians 1.9, which reads that the wicked shall be punished with an everlasting destruction from the, from the uh, presence of Yahweh and from the glory of his Father. If you're down in hellfire, you're, you haven't been everlastingly destroyed. You're still there, you know. Destruction in this verse is the Greek olethros uh, and means to destroy, not live forever, sizzling in sulfurous flames for eternity. So the difference is the word punishing and punishment. Punishing is an action, an action. Punishment is a, is a, a state, everlasting punishment. That means you're in that punished state forever. And that's death. The Bible says it's death. So, as I said, I was going to wrap this up. But... We have to reach for higher ground every day. You know, we try our best to live for Yahweh. We try our best to do his will, not that we're earning brownie points, not we're trying to get gold stars. We're just doing his will because he's asked us to. We look to serve him one day forever in his kingdom if we're found worthy. And so our dedication has to be high. It has to be up there that he approves and not just lackadaisical, but strong, and attractive to others, that they want to know the truth as well, and one that comes from knowing the word, studying the word. May we all do that. Yahweh bless you.